Welcome to Thesis, a podcast about trends in higher education systems and international spheres, exploring the field of higher education across the world. I'm your host, Kelly Davis. Today we are joined by Nombasa Batioti, a recent master's psychology graduate. We will be discussing her master's thesis, Black Female First Generation Students' Lived Experiences at a Historically White South African University. Nombasa will briefly explain the rationale and methodology of her thesis before providing an important context to South African higher education. Then we will take a deep dive into some of her findings concerning specific lived experiences related to gender and race marginalization and how these are compounded when intersecting with their first-generation status. Finally, we asked Nombasa about the implications of her research. If you are left wanting more, you will find a link to Nombasa's thesis in the show notes. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Thesis. I am joined today by Nambasa Batioti, and she's going to be speaking with us today about her master's thesis, which focused on Black female first-generation students in a historically white institution in South Africa. Nambasa, can you just tell us about what your master's thesis was? What was your research question, and how did you go about gathering your data? So my research question focused on Black female first-generation students' lived experiences at an historically white South African university. And the research aims included lived experiences of attending an historically white institution, perceptions, if any, of gendered and racialized microaggressions and or institutionalized exclusionary practices, strategies employed to negotiate the university system, and express support needs. So a lot of things (laughs) covered in in one thesis, which is super impressive. What inspired you to focus specifically on this group of students? The inspiration or the thoughts behind this research, which I wanted to understand, is really look into the intersecting identities, marginalized identities of Black students, because I found that in most literature, there was an extensive research of Black students as a homogeneous group. And as as important as that is, and of course it contributes greatly to literature, but I found that there was a gap in the literature as well where there wasn't enough literature that I found that spoke extensively about these students' social identities as a heterogeneous group with different experiences that come from the aspects of their gendered experiences, their their racial experiences, as well as their social class, them coming from a first-generation students, which they're likely to come from a low socioeconomic background. So I found that there wasn't enough literature with, with regards to that. And I think it's important that we understand this group as a heterogeneous group in order to develop intervention strategies that really do take into consideration the socio-cultural and socio-economic challenges and issues that these students navigate in order to pursue higher education, specifically within the historically white institutional context. Definitely. And I we're going to get into some of your findings later and also what you believe might be some kind of best practices or means of intervention that would be useful as emerging from your research. But for our audience, because we are a podcast focusing on a whole bunch of different countries, so we definitely have listeners all over the world who aren't as familiar about various systems. Can you start by just telling us a bit about higher education in South Africa that will set up 
the context, you know, what, what about higher education in South Africa is unique and maybe will pertain to first-generation students and their experiences. And you also mentioned something called the transformation agenda in South Africa. So if you can speak a little bit to that as well in this contextual part of the conversation. So higher education in South Africa, I'd attribute the unique context of higher education in South Africa to firstly the historical conduct under which it was established. So by historical conduct, I speak of the political and the cultural climate under which higher education was established, where there was an imbalanced promotion that is in the access of quality education based on one's gender, race and physical ability. I'd make an example to put it into context during the apartheid era in South Africa, so between the years of 1948 and 1994, there were elaborate laws that orchestrated or rather promoted separate development within the education sector and many other sectors as well, but speaking specifically within the education sector, where there was a law called the Bantu Education Act of 1953. And with that, it was a political strategy to kind of restrict oppressed social identities, mostly which were Black people people and restrict them into more laborious jobs and kind of limit their progression within the workspace with regards to the kind of quality of education that they offered them at that time. And then that later then developed to the Extension of Universities Act of 1959, which was implemented in universities. And that meant that there were universities that were specifically designed for white students and prevented the admission of black students. And with that as well, there was also universities that were specifically designed for black students as well. And this was all with the belief that according to our races, we shall develop separately and with that, they also created a Population Registration Act of 1950 that classified people into different racial groups. So as I go through and communicate what my research is about and what my literature is about, I will refer to those racial classifications not as a means of perpetuating essentialist ideals of race, but rather as a mark to readdress and understand the historical in inequalities that manifested within the higher education education sector. So if you have to fast forward then to the post-apartheid era, so that's 1994 until present, where South Africa was in a officially a democratic country, and that meant that higher education was faced with the reality then of readdressing the social inequalities and injustices within the higher education system, and especially within historically white institutions. And with that attempt of trying to implement the transformation agenda. Scholars have also uh, found that there was too much focus placed on increasing the numbers of historically marginalized identity. And as important as it, that is, it is also equally important to ensure that we don't just focus on increasing the numbers of marginalized social identities, but we also address issues that persist within this environment that continue to marginalize people according to their race, gender, culture, or class. And an example that I can use with that is in South Africa in the year 2015-2016, 
there was a plight of student protests. I'd make an example of the Roads Must Fall protests that specifically spoke on the students' dissatisfaction and encounters that really spoke to the residues of colonial and apartheid systems within historically white institutions. And they also spoke taking down symbols and statues on campus that kind of resembled our, our painful past. So I'd say that's currently where we are and that's how I'd attribute the uniqueness of higher education in South Africa really in accordance with the political and the cultural climate under which it was established and currently the transformation agenda trying to reform and readdress and also with that it came with incredible and noticeable improvements within higher education. But the reality of it is that transformation in South Africa has been one that has been very emotionally fueled. It has been strongly contested. And there's also been hindrances as well in terms of the effectiveness of how transformation is implemented in higher education, especially the focus of increasing the numbers of historically marginalized identities. It has also created a stereotype where Black students are then perceived to only being admitted in higher education to kind of increase numbers. And with that came with the pressure where Black students will feel the need to constantly prove their capability and competence to sort of say that I'm not just here because I'm a Black student, but I do have the credibility and the academic competence to be here. So that's how I really describe higher education in South Africa, both in the historical context and also what it is now currently. So then what are the challenges for Black female first-generation students in historically white institutions when it comes to navigating those spaces, these universities? So on my research, I speak on the concept of whiteness as a phenomenon. Frankenberg explains it as the open code production and reproduction of dominance rather than subordination, normativity rather than marginality, and privilege rather than disadvantage, close quote. And with that description and a deepened understanding of what the phenomenon entails, and this kind of deepens an understanding of the kind of imbalanced privileges that certain social identities, or rather the environment, maintains an imbalance of privileges in either the practices that are on campus, or rather through practices that are excluding certain uh, social identities that are often viewed as as normal. The way that I explore this phenomenon, I explore it in relation to physical space and race. So that looks at basically the kind of symbolism that is on campus, the statues that are on campus. What do those statues communicate? What message do those statues convey? to students that are in that campus? Are they representative of the diversity of students that occupy that space? I also explore the phenomenon within context of campus culture and racialized interaction, basically unpacking what campus culture looks like, tends to look like in historically white institutions, and how it also has the potential to socially include and exclude certain students as well. I also look at the phenomenon in context of, of the construction of gendered racism and this is a concept that was established by Philomena Est where she described the double 
fold of racism and sexism that are experienced by black and female social identities. And lastly, I also explore the phenomenon in context of language and academic curriculum, where we kind of revisit with that, I revisit the language policies. In my research, I also encourage a more balanced representation and use of language on campus, because we do know that language is tied to one's cultural, ethnic identity as well, and also has the ability to kind of orchestrate inclusion or exclusion amongst students. And also look at the academic curriculum as well, using the phenomenon of whiteness. I think it's also important that we understand what intersectionality of marginalized social identity is. And for me, I'd describe it as sort of a unique intersection or rather a compound of social identities that are socially marginalized or excluded in society. And we can only imagine the kind of experiences or challenges that come with that. In the context of education, Black students are often found to encounter a lot of discriminatory encounters that really target their race and, and that creates a, a sense of isolation, a lowered sense of belonging and a, a lowered um, self-esteem as well. For most of these students, they usually encounter these experiences for the first time in universities. In the context of South Africa, of course, and Kessie on Cornell speaks about this, where most of these black students often encounter a lot of shock when they get into the universities and they come to the realization of what it means to navigate higher education as a Black person. In addition to that, there's also a negative stereotype attached to transformation, which I mentioned earlier, that tends to paint Black students as only being admitted to increase the, the numbers of historically marginalized identities in the space. That tends to create the idea that they're not admitted according to their credibility academically. And if those perceptions or negative stereotypes are internalized by these students, then it tends to also manifest feelings of self-doubt and also overworking as a point of like proving a point to other counterparts that I am competent and I, I deserve to be here and in turn it impacts the emotional and psychological well-being. In cases of female experiences then, they tend to navigate higher education and encounter a lot of gender discrimination on campus where, for example, Mahano found that Black female postgraduate students experience difficulties for instance, they tend to experience a power dynamic amongst the supervisors where they might feel overpowered to take on a specific topic. If not, there also tends to be a view that westernized paradigms of conducting research are more significant, for instance, with that having to navigate personal issues of being Black and female, in addition to some universities not having enough postgraduate support systems as well for these students. So in addition to being a Black students and encountering those challenges of being racially discriminated, you also encounter challenges of identifying as a female student, feeling undermined, having a lowered sense of belonging on campus. And this is especially true for, I know I speak about Ungambule, who speaks about her personal encounters as a Black African postgraduate student historically white institution, and recalls instances where she felt like social 
social determinants, such as coming from a low socioeconomic background, for instance, or a township school, have been used to question her academic competence. And although that may have come from a place of concern, really from lectures, but it does point to the likeliness of students experiencing where their socioeconomic background is used against them to question their academic competence. From another aspect as well, that females do experience when they are in these environments, they found that there is, I use the the, the term hegemonic masculinity uh, as a way to discuss social practices that position male figures in dominant and authoritative positions. That is usually maintained through culture or institutional practices as well in high education. And how that is usually reproduced I'll make an example. It tends to be a a perception that subjects such as physics, maths, and technology are more masculine subjects, and I put that in, in quotation marks, and also how higher education generally is dominated by male figures, and you find that in creche, lower primary uh, is mostly dominated by females. That on its own kind of communicates or conveys a message that there are gender-specific roles as well that are at play within the education sector and in non-academic activities as well. So you've gone over some of the these broader trends and now I'm curious and I think we all want to know what are some of the themes that you came across in your research that relate to these trends? Just tell us about some of the main themes that you found doesn't have to be all of them and perhaps provide an example or two that you heard from your interviews. I found about six main themes and with that they are coupled with sub-themes that elaborate on the nuance of the experience or the nuances of the main theme. And the first was culture shock. And this theme kind of encompasses the expressed unfamiliar campus culture that these students had to come across or adjust to. They found it very difficult to adapt into the space of um, historically marked white institutions. And they also experienced experiences that conveyed a, a very dominant campus culture, which lacked the inclusivity of the full spectrum of the student identities on campus, and in this case specifically referring to Black African cultural identity. The culture shock main theme was coupled with sub-themes such as the geographical and social change, which really refers to the actual challenge of physically having to move from one community to another that is usually unknown and has different expectations in terms of how you behave and how you present yourself as well. One of the participants also expressed difficulty in kind of donating the expected cultural identity or, or, or expected behavior in a new environment and one of the participants also expressed the difficulty in connecting their existing support networks from back home with the new environment as well because they found that there was a perceived incompatibility with the identities that were expected from those two places and this all signifies that there was an unmet distinction between the diversity of students and actually experiencing a sense of inclusivity on campus. 
In addition to that, language exclusion was also one of the experiences that the students specifically recall instances where they felt like there was a preferred language of instruction at at their university. One of the the participants also expressed how they didn't like how the language of Isikosa is being utilized. This kind of points to the issue of how sometimes multilingual lingualism can be a ground for an imbalanced utilization of language. That is a very sensitive topic in South Africa because language has an ability to instigate segregation along the lines of culture or ethnicity because it is tied to one's cultural identity as well. So how it's being used has the potential to orchestrate the inclusion and exclusion of certain students based on their social identity. I also found the sub-theme of microaggressions. Students received subtle insults that were not verbal, they were non-verbal, and they were specifically based on their social identity. One that was specifically illuminated in these findings was macro-assaults. That was really epitomized through avoided behavior, where students felt like their presence as Black students was not acknowledged, if not, it was invisibilized, and they also noticed that there was interaction was really in isolation where black students would interact together and you find that white students in that case were interacting on their own in in this specific event they felt like there wasn't an intergroup like a racial intergroup interaction one participants also described instances where they felt unwelcoming stares around campus where they felt like they were stared as as almost an, an amusement as to why are you here or not specifically why are you yeah, it's almost an amusement of like, oh, wow, why you, you occupy the space. Another theme was vulnerable. And this theme highlights the vulnerability that Black African female students encounter when navigating with intersected and marginalized social identities. One of the participants also described being Black and female as a, I quote, survival struggle. That signifies the doubled extent again of having to negotiate your identity in order to exist. Participants also expressed the need where they felt the pressure to prove their competence and make an impression, specifically in areas of academia or when they presented with the with with an opportunity. One of the participants expressed that kind of pressure in relation to again the stereotype that is attached to transformation, where there tends to be an idea that students are admitted because of their color or gender. One of the participants also expressed than the need where they always feel like they have to fight to be seen. Most of these students might feel like they have to overwork themselves or to combat those racially negative uh, stereotypes that are attached to transformation, just to prove a point to say that I deserve to be here and I am competent to do so. So another main theme was breaking new ground. And this one specifically highlights the novelty and the newness of pursuing higher education as a first-generation student, not only from the aspect of their own experiences as a first-generation student, but as a new experience as well as for their families too. Because we must remember that first-generation students are the first in their family to attend higher education. And in my 
my research, I explain it as students who have who do not have parents or guardians who have experience of higher education. With that theme, I have a sub-theme called the novel experience. Again, it speaks to the challenges of not having attained insider knowledge. I put that in inverted commas from parents who experience higher education. Because you must understand that when you have insider knowledge, it, it is useful in meeting higher education expectations and demands and increases the level of preparedness because you sort of have a, a reservoir and a reference on how one can navigate how, higher education. An example from one of the participants is they kind of express the newness of navigating higher education as a very difficult experience with, with unclear expectations as well of what higher education entails because you're the first to attend higher education. I quote the participants saying, you sort of in the dark and just and just do what you can. That literally implies that they have experiences of unclear expectations and demands of higher education, like I said earlier. One of the participants also said that they've never imagined pursuing their master's degree growing up. And that speaks to the newness of um, this kind of experience for them. The other sub-theme is family trendsetter and pressure to perform. So that speaks on the added pressure to set an example to the upcoming generation, meeting family expectations as well because you might be held to a high regard and also feeling the pressure to perform exceptionally academically so you don't feel like you've disappointed your family and thirdly financial pressure as well two of these participants expressed instances where they were worried about their finances when it comes to funding their academic journey and one of the participants recalls a time when they were doing their honors where they experienced a lot of financial difficulty to a point where they almost discontinued the academics and dropped out but luckily they got funding at the postgraduate office and they were able to pursue the honors degree basically in every country that we've discussed the issue for first generation students not having somebody with kind of that insider knowledge that you talk about is a huge Mm -hmm. issue but it's also you know with each of these kind of subsets with the with these other different intersecting identities there's something additional and so You've really brought to the fore kind of these important trends, these important things that these students are experiencing that kind of, as you say, compounds and you just have all of these different things adding up to the stress that might be felt or even kind of the the real maybe even triumph when success is reached. And it helps to kind of explain some of those emotions, I think, but also just it explains why the challenges are challenges and helps us identify, I think, where we need to make changes. How do you think universities, especially historically white institutions, can change to support Black female first generation students and perhaps create a more inclusive environment? So in my research, I I provide a list of implications that may hinder the effectiveness of transformation specifically in historically white institution and in relation to the insights that I present in my research findings. I think it's important to mention that the findings that I have are not not generalizable to the rest of South Africa. They're specific to participants that I interview. And number one is to reimagine a new campus culture and practices. Carr and Witt in 1998 
of the article, they describe campus culture as, open quote, persistent patterns of norms, values, practices, beliefs, and assumptions that shape behavior of individuals and groups in a college, university, close quote. Again, that description highlights how campus culture is a very important part in higher education. It has the ability to curate uh, a sense of belonging for students and also create a, a lowered sense of belonging for some students based on their social identity. And it also has the ability to permeate in campus activities and practices. You can almost view it as a praxis that can be used to create a university environment. It, it is imperative for universities to ensure that there is no dominating culture that excludes other cultural identities. The most attainable place to start off in addressing an imbalance in camp campus culture is to make sure that there's an equal representation and all cultural identities that are on campus are embraced equally. That way, it will create a sense of inclusivity on campus. People feel represented. And in the case of historically white institutions, it will also feed into ensuring that transformation measures that are on campus are implemented appropriately as a true representation of the student body that occupies that space. And number two, developing a holistic transformation approach. Scholars have discussed how there tends to be a focus on increasing numbers of historically marginalized identity. If that is the approach, then it creates hindrance in implementing a transformation agenda, an inclusive environment that takes into consideration the uniqueness in the intersection of marginalized social identities. If we are to take the approach of transformation agenda and address it effectively, by speaking on issues of race, gender, and class, for instance, then that means that we also get to understand that Black students or historically marginalized identities, rather, are a heterogeneous group. And taking on a blanket approach, such as increasing numbers of historically marginalized identity, will then really struggle to meet the needs of the student's cultural identity, language, gender, and social class. For example, in this research specifically, the participants expressed a, a discrepancy between the diversity of students versus how the experiences of exclusion have been on campus, where they had encounters that were less receptive to their social identities. And my advice with that is for universities to focus on appropriate representation, and that will require addressing issues of gender, race, thoroughly, to ensure that all students feel a sense of belonging, there's lowered feelings of self-doubt or imposter syndrome and insecurity. Also increasing the numbers of academics as well that are Black and African female first-generation academics to ensure that will help with representation and, and effectively help with an enhanced level of self-efficacy. Thirdly, develop progressive academic curriculum programs to ensure that in academics, both in postgraduate and undergraduate qualifications, that universities incorporate modules that encourage critical engagement with regards to the social identities that are present at the university and how we can make sure that we conscientize students with their perhaps 
unconscious racial prejudices and to also make sure that all students have an understanding of the kind of lived experiences of marginalized student identities. And this will possibly enhance because there will be an understanding and an opportunity to critically engage on such issues in classroom platforms, for instance, this may enhance the intergroup contact between different racial groups as well, because now there's a deepened understanding of one's experience. And also there's an awareness of maybe one's unconscious prejudices as well. In summary, I in this research, I basically submit that issues of race and gender and discrimination need to be tackled from an academic aspect. So teaching and learning to motivate critical thinking and engagement and prevent any subconscious or conscious behaviors that replicate the social inequalities of our past. To also understand the, the experiences of first-generation students, both from a level of micro-systematic level and the macro-systematic level, because there tends to be an understanding of the challenges that they encounter, but not enough on understanding kind of the socioeconomic and sociocultural difficulties that impact the academic performance, for instance, or the mental health and higher education. Thank you for all these concrete thoughts and what you've shared. It's been really great to speak with you about your research and take such a deep dive into what you spent so much time on and put so much effort to. Clearly, it's a great piece of work. And I think that if people are more interested, they should go and read it. <laughs> there's more, there's more to understand from your thesis. But we are going to wrap it up now. So I would like to ask you a final question, which we ask all of our guests. Who is someone or was there a specific experience which was particularly influential in your higher education journey or in maybe in the development of this research that you completed? I think my inspiration really comes from having had a father who, during the apartheid era who was previously arrested as well for, at Robben Island as one of the activists who fought against the inequalities of that time. I think subconsciously it may have opened my eyes to being able to identify or notice or be conscious and knowledgeable of the social inequalities that are experienced by historically marginalized identities. So I think that also might have inspired me to really stand up for something because I know that my opportunity to be here and study came at a cost just looking at my own personal experience and looking at the experiences of dad it came at a cost and i that alone might have also inspired me actually to pursue this degree really thank you for today it was so wonderful to have you on the podcast thank you on our next episode we'll be talking about first generation college students in china with dr ma hin who is a research professor at lanju university school of philosophy and sociology in china the focus of our conversation will be on the job satisfaction levels of first-generation college students and the psychological factors at play. If you liked what you listened to on Thesis today, please follow the podcast and leave us a rating or a comment. Links to relevant work by our guests and their contact information can be found in the show notes. Today's Thesis episode does not take position on the issues discussed on the podcast. Opinions expressed on this episode are solely those of the guests or hosts. This podcast is produced and edited by Ekaterina Korinska, Ayla Rubenstein, Tracy Waldman, Kelly Davis, and Maria Angeles Hidalgo. Original music is produced by Petter Strong. Thanks for listening to Thesis. We'll talk to you next time.